Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network Science Podcast. My name is Özlem Yılmaz. I'm a philosopher of biology based in Stockholm. Today, we have Professor Wendy Lindy with us. Professor Lee is a faculty member at Bloomsburg University in the Department of Philosophy. Her new book, This is Environmental Ethics, an Introduction, was published by Wiley Blackwell in 2022. First of all, thank you very much for joining us today. It is a great pleasure to talk about your book, which I read with great interest. And also, it is a great pleasure to get to know about yourself and your work a bit. Uh, so first, Professor Lee, can you talk a little bit about yourself, your background, what brought you to this topic and how you decided to write this book focused on environmental ethics? So I think part of I think part of the answer to that question is that I had the great fortune of growing up somewhere just particularly beautiful, where being outside was um, just so attractive. It's just something that I grew up in Colorado, um, the um, colorful Colorado, as we called it when I was a kid, and just having the opportunity to be outside a, a great deal to do lots of hiking and mountain climbing. Um, I think it was early on um, in, in my my bone marrow that I just genuinely cared not only about the environment, but about the environment in relation to the lives of all of the species that occupy a habitat, the people that also occupy it, but often in really destructive sorts of ways. Um, and even some of my early publications, as far flung as Aristotle, have this kind of ecological feeling to them, the sort of ecological disposition. I, I think it's just kind of always been with me. Yeah. Um, and I would like to first ask that there is so much to uh, talk about the book. Um, First, I would like to ask about the connection between philosophy and sciences. And here I will combine kind of two questions. Uh, in one part of the book, you are discussing the role of philosophy for organizing concepts that are crucial for environment and for our lives. Uh, first, can you say a bit on this? And in addition, uh, you described the importance of science for understanding uh, environment and life. Uh, so can you talk about the interdisciplinary aspects of environmental ethics? Because different branches of sciences are required for uh, developing environmental ethics. Is that right? It, very much so. And I think more so as, as time goes by. Um, so the relationship between philosophy and the sciences generally has, I think, grown a good deal over the 20th and in, well into the 21st century. And I think there are lots of reason for, reasons for that depending upon the particular discipline within philosophy um, that, that, that is your area, right? That is your area of specialization. So, right, there is indeed, and I have taught philosophy of science, where often, almost always the goal is to talk about some of the really important organizing concepts that are relevant to both philosophy and science. Concepts like, what do we mean 
by fact. What is a fact? Right? What, what do we mean when we refer to a theory? Um, concepts like um, Karl Popper's um, really central concept of falsification um, and what that means um, toward the development of hypotheses um, where we are looking for facts to confirm, or at least to, at least provisionally confirm our hypotheses. So the relationship between philosophy and the sciences, I think, has long been a very intimate one, and in particular disciplines in philosophy, environmental ethics just being one, one of those. I think that relationship is particularly important because if I'm going to talk in my own work with, with, with any credibility about, just for example, the zoonotic connection between the climate crisis and uh, the coronavirus pandemic, it's just vitally important that I have my facts right, um, that, that I have that, that theoretical connection in such a way that I can lay it out in this particular case for an upper division, but nonetheless undergraduate writer, first year graduate student audience. Right? I want it. I want. I want my ideas to be as broadly accessible as I can make them, because the goal for me ultimately is change. It is substantive, real, viable change in the direction of dealing much more effectively than we are now with a whole range of environmental crises that intersect in very important ways with lots of human crises like food insecurity and lots of crises with respect to non-human animal extinction like the probable loss of the Sumatran elephant by mid-century. Right? So science plays an important role zoology, biology, geology, paleoontology, it plays just a really critical role trying to formulate and pan out the connections between all of these things. <laughs> yep. And uh, you write that climate change is different from previous environmental problems. So can you tell a bit about this? And uh, perhaps uh, is this related to the distinction you make between human-centeredness and human chauvinism. Maybe uh, can you talk about these also in connection with Anthropocene and climate change? Sure. So I think, and I think there's generally broad agreement about this. I, I don't think there's anything original about this idea with me that, that the climate crisis is different in virtue, different from say issues of pollution, just for example. Um, air and water. It, cli the climate crisis is different in part because the solutions, if, if, if there still are any, right, I say that kind of tentatively, the solutions to it are going to be harder and they're going to require even more by way of international corporate uh, cooperation. Um, they're going to, climate. the climate crisis is going to require important and I think ultimately difficult decisions that that countries, that nation states are going to have to make in coordination with other nation states um, in the interest of addressing it because the climate crisis knows no borders. 
Now, I know that other environmental crises also, you know, know no borders. Pollution doesn't know any borders. Radiation doesn't know any borders, right? And so those kinds of crises may be the most similar to the climate crisis because they require that kind of international uh, cooperation. Um, but they're different from other sorts of crises, like, for example, um, the kinds of crises we have faced where I live in very rural Pennsylvania over, for example, um, uh, hydraulic fracturing. At one level, hydraulic fracturing is international because um, those uh, hydrocarbon releases are part of the climate crisis. But at another level, it intersects with people and non-human animal life and local ecologies in a way that just requires local, more localized or regionalized attention. Right. And I'm not saying that that's not true of the climate crisis as well. Right. That people people are going to have to act in their own lives. But it's it's sheer magnitude that we're talking about the atmosphere, that we're talking about a warming planet. Right. That we are rapidly approaching, you know, if we haven't already passed it, that ever elusive tipping point. That makes the climate crisis different. And so I would use language um, actually instead of Anthropocene, right? And I understand what that means, right? The, the human era, right? The human dominated era. But, you know, we've been there for a long, long time. And I think we're actually gradually moving out of the Anthropocene to what I, in my own work, and the language is clunky. <laughs> to what I have in my own work been calling the kleptocene. And what I mean by that specifically is we are rapidly approaching a moment where global capitalist markets are more and more willing to resort to unvarnished resource theft because they know that their contribution, right? For example, the gas and oil industry knows its contribution to the climate crisis is massive, right? As does the animal agriculture industry, right? Know that the contribution is immense, but un entirely unwilling to, um, at, at a minimum, shift to alternative forms of energy, right? Which I think is the bare bones minimum that they could be doing. Um, we we are approaching a point where there's just no return and where capitalism effectively dominates governments in all kinds of, of ways through lobbyists, through other forms of influence. Um, but where, where we're approaching a time where we're seeing both the rise of autocratic governments, autocratic and in the sort of classic definition, fascist, because government is now largely wed to these enormous and highly polluting corporate interests that effectively produce the conditions for resource theft, for just unvarnished resource theft, where, you know, the, I don't, we, we won't survive. We won't live through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so for, from here, maybe can you describe how morality and ethical theories are connected? And what kind of roles morality has uh, in developing ethics? 
Moreover, you talk about many other important concepts in the book, such as moral considerability and moral extensionism. Can you say a bit about uh, those as well? Sure. So, um, in in philosophy, and this is how this is how we approach the difference between morality and ethics, just as instructors, just as teachers. The difference between morality and ethics is in when, and the, and the difference. We use this language often interchangeably, right? So the the relationship here is is very close between these two things. But typically in philosophy, when we refer to ethics, what we're generally getting at are um, the more universal moral theories that are intended to govern or direct provide a moral compass to our individual lives. So, for example, and this gets us right into moral extensionism. When, when in the book I'm talking about moral extensionism, what I'm talking about is the question, can we apply certain kinds of moral theories, right? one of which is called the theory of um, utility, right? where um, it is the consequences of our actions. We're trying to maximize happiness and minimize suffering. The, the, and those consequences are 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 aim at generating good consequences, like producing a healthier planet, right, or fewer extinctions, or a, a more equal um, food availability, right. We're trying to we're aiming for those consequences, and so our questions then become: What does the individual morally centered person do, right? What do I do? in order to contribute to that project. But in the in the in environmental ethics, what I argue is that many of these theories actually meet pretty important, pretty daunting obstacles um, with respect to their application beyond the realm of human beings and human actions. Um, when we try to apply these theories, in order to answer really difficult questions like, what is my moral responsibility to the environment? We try to extend those principles to say non-human animals or to ecological systems. I argue that that is actually a pretty tough road to hoe. It, it hits up against obstacles like, um, you know, what is my obligation to sentient life? Right. What you know? How do I do? Do trees have rights? How do I conceive of the moral considerability of, say, a forest or a mountain, right, or other you know non-sentient entities or systems? And the importance of sentience here, I think, is is considerable because this question: what what ought I to regard as morally important? morally considerable really bears on this question of sentience and it connects importantly with science because the more that we learn through the sciences about the sentience of non-human animal species even potentially insects right even potentially um um things like um uh, crustaceans or mollusks right or shrimp right then those questions get to be harder and harder Right, because sentience can imply the capacity to suffer. And the principle of utility tells us that our moral duty is to act in some such way to minimize suffering. 
do those entities count? That's where it gets tough. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, my next question was directly about that. So you, you, you talked about these concept sentience organisms and if whether we can do some kind of categorization of, uh, of organisms through, through these concepts. Um, maybe one more question that I may ask, uh, in relation to these, uh, what, what, what is the distinction between environmental ethics and bioethics? Uh, do you see them as overlapping? Yes, certainly they're overlapping in, in lots of important ways. Um, more than I can even imagine in any one moment. Just to give you one example, it picks up on something I said earlier. I, I speak at some length in the book about the relationship between the climate crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic. And my purpose in doing that is to try to show that there are really important questions about, for example, zoonotic transmission between non-human animal species like bats or pangolins and, and, and human beings with respect to um, our, um, that, we have, that we can now contract COVID-19. Right? And so those questions certainly are relevant to both bioethics and environmental ethics because wherever it is, we trace the ultimate origin. Or, you know, honestly, even if we don't ever know for sure, which is probably likely, whether the origin of COVID-19 is a, a, a more natural, that the, uh, the wet markets say, right, or um, a, some sort of a lab leak, I think at the end of the day, that might not matter as much as if we come to understand how our relationship with non-human animals and our relationship to environments that are increasingly compromised by, say, human agricultural production, right, which is very much the story of a lot of more rural China, right? Until we come to understand those relationships that bear on both disciplines, I don't think that we really understand what's going on in one of them fully or what's going on in the other, right? And I think that we can make out that connection for lots of things beyond pandemics. Um, I think we could talk about cancer. I think we could talk about malaria. I think we can talk about Ebola, right? I think we can talk about Zika, any of those things. Um, and those things also connect intimately to the lives and welfare of human communities, right? Because as we well know from the pandemic, in the United States, we ask, well, who died? And uh, who, who was made the sickest? Who died? Who had the least access to the vaccine when we had a vaccine? Right? It, elderly people, nursing home people, poor people, right? Poor people in communities that were predominantly, say, um, minority communities or uh, Native American reservations. Right? So there's an environmental justice component to that relationship, a bioethics component, an environmental ethics component, right? It's all there in a package. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just in connection with what you just said, in the book, you explain how inequalities of race, sex, gender, economic status, geography, and species are important in environmental ethics. 
perhaps the example of Flint, Michigan, which you explain a bit in the book also, illustrates the ways that uh, some of these intersect. Can you discuss this example a bit? Sure. So, right, Flint, Michigan is just a textbook case of grotesquely neglected human communities that already living in virtue of there being communities of economically disadvantaged folks and their children, people and their children, um, who are shifted to a new water source by a very conservative governor because it looks like it's going to be cheaper for the state. And then they are exposed to a, a wide variety of toxins over a long period of time that does incalculable and irreversible harm to many of their children. And so the intersection here of environmental justice, um, racial justice, um, and economic justice um, is just, it's complex, but it's intimate. And, and you, I don't think you can talk about any one of those aspects without talking about them all, right? And so in some broader way, I don't, I don't really imagine that we could see a fully successful, right, a, a fully realized environmental justice movement, feminist movement, um, uh, racial justice, civil rights movement, certainly not here in the U.S. I think that's probably true everywhere without lots of interaction among, among these movements, right, the gay rights movement. Right, um, the LGBTQ plus movement. Right, if if we don't work on them all, we're. I don't think we're going to realize any. And I think at the top of that, the top of that pyramid of sorts, is surely environmental justice. Right now, you know, maybe this reflects a bias on my part, but in a very simple kind of plain spoken way, if we trash, we've only got this one planet. This is it that we've only got one atmosphere, right? We trash it, and then and none of these other movements are gonna matter, right? If we don't attend to the climate crisis and all of its attendant geopolitical, geoeconomic implications, we're just gonna do ourselves in, and these movements are not gonna have anywhere to go because we'll be dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, there, there's so much in the book, uh... In, in each chapter, but maybe can you say a bit about ecocentric ethic? You examine two examples of this, and uh, maybe can you tell a bit about one of these accounts uh, and their critiques a little bit? I know that there's so much to talk uh, here, but maybe just a little bit. So e ecocentrism is, um, it is a, a very popular, there's, there's lots of, lots of really valuable ideas going on there. Um, and it is in, I, I think the shortest, th this is really unsatisfactory, but the, the shortest, briefest way I can put it is that like its name suggests, the idea is that we as say individual moral agents ought to shift our perspective in this really radical, ultimately pretty difficult way to think in terms of 
what is best, what is in the best interest of the environment, even potentially at the sacrifice of ourselves. I take um, some of the leading, more contemporary uh, proponents of this view to be folks like um, Derek Jensen um, in his um, widely, highly reputed two-volume work called Endgame, um, where he makes out essentially that argument that um, he, he includes something that he calls the 21 Theses, right, where he makes out this argument about um, how Western civilization must simply come to an end. Now, I have been highly critical of this view um, in a bunch of different ways. Here are, here are just a couple. One, and this gets us back to the difference between human centeredness and human chauvinism, actually. I think that philosophically, that the very idea that I can shift my perspective as if I were the environment and then act accordingly is actually impossible and at the end of the day, dishonest. I have one consciousness, the world that I have, or I, maybe I'm channeling Jean-Paul Sartre here for a minute, um, is the world I have through this consciousness. I am, I think, invariably human-centered. But that doesn't necessarily imply that I'm chauvinistic as in driven solely by my self-interest, my own wants, my own needs. I, I can be human-centered and, I have argued, adopt a position where human-centeredness means I must take responsibility for my actions. I must try to lead by example through my actions. And for the ecocentrist, like a Derek Jensen, um, that, that approach ultimately leads to human chauvinism but I have argued that it doesn't have to, right? That it that we could be human centered, especially collectively, in such in such a way that we think in terms of our responsibilities, not just what we can get out of the environment. Now, I think that this demands a revolution against capitalism. <laughs> I think that that's ultimately where this has to go. And in that sense, Jensen and I agree, right? He's no more a fan of capitalism than I am. But when he talks about the end of Western civilization, right, he also talks about the people who are going to survive, right? And I think at the I think still at the end of this, the people he's got in mind are still the people who are in the best position to survive. And those people are gonna be white. And they're going to be wealthy and they're going to be men, <laughs> right? Because they're, they've got the resources to go, you know, prepper, right? To, you know, to dig dugouts, right? To, you know, and so when we ask, you know, who have you got at the end of this revolution, Jensen? I think it's the same people that got us into trouble in the first place. Um, and uh, the title of the final chapter of the book is Environmental Justice ecological feminism, social justice, and animal rights. And there's so much in this chapter too. And it continues to build on what you have said in previous chapters. Also, I think the title resonates with another statement you make 
uh, you, you said earlier too, environmental justice is social justice, is economic justice. Uh, while we don't have time to specifically talk about each chapter, but maybe perhaps uh, we can bring some of these ideas together. Can you say a bit about this final chapter? Maybe you can also describe your uh, argument about taking the aesthetic in experience as an important feature of an ecofeminist environmental ethic. Yeah, so yeah, let, let me talk about John Dewey. Um, so I think that John Dewey, right, he's widely reputed in the United States to be a philosopher of education, but he also wrote a, a good deal and beautifully about what he, what he calls the aesthetic in experience. And not all, but many of the examples that he gives have a really distinctive um, environmental past to them, right? They, the, aesthetic, the aesthetic of, you know, the, the beautiful sunset, the, the, the roaring river, river the, you know, the beautiful vista. And I think, and I have argued this elsewhere, and I know it's a kind of controversial argument, but I think that if what it is that we're ultimately after, I think it cannot be merely sustainability. I, I'm actually really critical of the whole vocabulary of sustainability. And here, and my reasons are moral, but they're also aesthetic. We could imagine a planet that is sustainable, but is awful. Right, that is dirty, that is impoverished, that is you know um, that is pockmarked by by war and suffering, that has you know that, that it is always on the brink of more extinction or more crisis. We could make that sustainable, right? But it's so deeply undesirable. Why would we work so hard? Why would we care? Why do I don't want my children? I have a grandchild now. I don't want my grandchild, Jack, to live in that world. And I think what Dewey brings to us is this bigger idea that our moral decision-making must also be connected to something that I have called the desirable future. That, that is a world that isn't merely sustainable, but ugly, that is also verdant and beautiful right a world that's that's worth it that's worth living it now does that mean that we have to work even harder to try to achieve that does that mean that we have to we have to talk even more seriously not a, not just about alternatives but about very real conservation Right, which is often the missing piece in a lot of these discussions is con is is doing a lot more with a lot less. Right? It, it does is it is it going to be easy to achieve that world? No. But if it isn't beautiful, right? As as Dewey puts it, what makes our lives really of great value to us? What makes them worth it? What makes them morally considerable? What makes human centeredness? genuinely responsible is that we're working toward preserving or achieving a world that has color, that is not just gray, that is not just dirty. And so I think the this notion of the aesthetic inexperience 
provides a really important contribution to this notion of moral considerability um, because it's it at least in theory it gets us beyond the the merely sustainable you know of of worlds like McCarthy's the road <laughs> and gets us that in theory again to something that's actually worth fighting for <laughs> yeah um and I think my questions were, were to those in general. Uh, although, of course, I had many more, but uh, maybe at this point, can you describe a bit how the book in general can be integrated to classroom for student learning? What do you recommend to instructors and students? So it, it's, it's it's just out, and so you know we'll see um, we'll we'll see if it gets adopted. <laughs> my hope is that it will be adopted. It's intended for upper division undergraduate students. Um, there, there is a website at Wiley Blackwell, right, that you can access. And um, I have been working steadily, if slowly, on um, things like um, like uh, quiz banks and stuff, just other things that instructors can use to make to make the book more um, just more user friendly, more practicable. Um, so, you know, the idea is that instructors will find a somewhat more critical approach to things like moral extensionism and ecocentrism really attractive for students because it gives students a way to really um, more critically evaluate whether or not the moral principles that they already know are workable or whether or not we have to think harder and go a little bit further in order to really live in environmental ethic right so one of the things I, I talk about a lot at the beginning of the book is that this is a kind of Socratic uh, project right that this is about the the life worth living right Socrates right famous claim right the unexamined life is not worth living and I think part of my argument in this book is the un unexamined theory <laughs> the unexamined moral idea right um, is 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 not worth acting on and so that that's what i'm hoping students will get out of the book and i'm hoping that instructors find it practicable find it a very doable read um i look forward to revisions as they start to come in um and i would you know i'm certainly open to revising it you know as as those come great and so uh, finally with this book now finished and published uh, what topics are you now turning your attention to? What projects are you working on now? So um, right at the moment um, at um, at uh, Roman and Littlefield, um, I have a, a completed manuscript um, currently out for review that's called The Commodification of Sentience. <laughs> it's, it's kind of my... I don't know, my tour de force, I guess, uh, my, my, my big argument with respect to the, the importance of sentient life with respect to the critique of capitalism. And in that book, I make out, I think, what will be an, an, a fairly unpopular, but I think important argument that we cross a kind of Rubicon when we decide somewhere around the industrial revolution maybe maybe even earlier that whether or not an entity is sentient doesn't matter 
with respect to its being a commodifiable, marketable, sellable object. And my argument is that once we cross that Rubicon, it's sort of no holds barred and it's what sets us up to ultimately arrive at where I think we're at now at the kleptocene, where, where if the only thing that matters is whether or not something is commodifiable, right? Whether it is marketable, right? That, that is just a recipe for a kind of nihilistic self-destruction, right? So there's that. And I, I also, and I'm super excited about this. I just finished um, signing a contract a few weeks ago, right in the middle of coronavirus, <laughs> I just finished signing a project um, um, uh, to write a, a new book that is going to be a specifically feminist treatise that gets more and more in depth about that last chapter from This is Environmental Ethics. Wonderful. That's uh, what like. Wonderful. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading down. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yep, uh, thank you so much, Professor Yi, for joining us today. It was wonderful to talk about your book and hear about your fascinating work. Thank you. Thank you.